When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by CraneShares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN forward slash Real Vision. Now to the top analysis of today's markets. What does the Fed do now? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Peter Bookvar, CIO of Bleakly Financial Advisory. Hey, Peter, it's great to see you again. Hi, Maggie. Thanks for having me. Always good to see you. Yeah, and what a day. What a wild end to the week. I mean, we had that headline payroll number that surprised everyone to the upside. That sparked a big move higher in Treasury yields, higher in the U.S. dollar, caused a sell-off in stocks. But then if you walked away and came back, stocks turned around rallied strongly. But interestingly, it's kind of been fading a little bit into the close. They're still up. The Dow up a little under 1%, S&P a little over 1%, and the NASDAQ hanging on about 1.6%. 1.6%. What did you make of this market action today? Well, heading into the number, and then we can go into the number because I think it's important to look through some of the details and under the hood. Uh, and we, we reached some extremes. We had the um, the dollar index, which got very overbought. Uh, we had the um, stock market, which was very oversold. We had uh, oil prices when it got into the 90s was very overbought. Uh, and we have treasury yields, which I guess you can argue uh, is also overbought, but doesn't seem to want to go down. Uh, so that was sort of the setup. So we, we had some sort of extremes that uh, wondering what was going to cause the reversal. Now, in terms of the actual payroll number, um, couple of things. The, the headline number was helped out by uh, an increase of 73,000 government jobs, mostly at the state level. Now, the private sector job growth definitely exceeded expectations by about 100,000. Uh, so it still was a good number, but not as extreme as the headline number would portray. Plus, the upward revision of about 110,000 to the two prior months was all government. In fact, the private sector revisions for the prior two months was down by about 12,000, um, as I said, for the private sector. So it wasn't, it, the headline was one thing. Then I think when people digested it, they realized, okay, uh, it, was, it was good, but you know, not great, particularly when you look at the household survey, which showed a job gain of about 89,000, mm. which was rather mediocre. And when you combine that with a similar increase in the size of the labor force, the unemployment rate held at 3.8%, which is still the highest since January 2022. Then, of course, you had um, continued evidence of a plateauing in wage growth. And while the Treasury market still sold off today, uh, the 10-year yield came well off its highs, which I think helped spark uh, the equity rally, again, in the context of it being oversold. Oil prices have come down dollar index down for three days in a row. So I think that all combined for a little sort of relief going into the weekend. Yeah, just a, just a sort of a, a correction, um, as you say. But so 
Does it matter that they were government jobs? I mean, why is that a bit of a relief and maybe not un, uh, indicating overheating? Well, um, first of all, a government job is typically not as productive of a, as a private sector job. Uh, I think engaging the health of the U.S. economy is looking at business and how they're behaving. Mm. Because hiring somebody is in the private sector is a very important economic decision. Whereas if um, I'm getting a job in the public sector, uh, it may not be an economic decision. It's you're obviously a police officer, a firefighter, I need you. If you're someone in administrative uh, areas, well, it doesn't matter if I need you or not, you know, I'll just hire you anyway. Um, so I, I think there, there's a different complexion uh, of jobs and, and it's a different sort of messaging on who the employer is. So yeah, uh, hiring in the public sector, you're giving somebody a job and they're getting a paycheck, but um, it, it's definitely more deeper than that, that I think we should uh, be looking at. And this also comes after the, we can call it faulty ADP report this past Wednesday that showed, I think the job gain of about 86,000. Mm. Granted, they were overstating job growth during the summer. Maybe they were understating now, maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, now that's all measuring hiring. Firings remain pretty muted. Jobless claims yesterday, uh, around two hundred thousand, shows that um, you know employers are still uh, pretty reluctant to to let go of anybody. Do you think this jobs number changes anything for the Fed? Uh, I think the long end of the bond market has done a lot for the Fed since the July rate increase. The average 30-year mortgage rates up 100 basis points without the Fed having to do a thing. The bond markets tightened further for the Fed. So for the Fed to then hike again, I think, is ignoring what the market has just done. So I think as and, – and I think we, we've gotten some hints. We got that hint from Mary Daly who talked about financial conditions tightening, a.k.a. long-term interest rates are high, higher. Uh, Bostic talked about the same thing. Now, then you had Governor Bowman, who says, yeah, we'll raise another few more times. She apparently uh, doesn't have a quote machine, because like I said, the long end of the yield curve has further tightened for the Fed since their July rate increase. Therefore, right. there's no reason for them to hike again if these rates stay at these levels for a sustainable period of time. Yeah, we've been we've been discussing the bond volatility a lot this week. I mean, that seems to be really driving so much of what's going on. Um, we've had some great conversations. Here's a highlight of some of them, and then we'll talk on the other side. How is the U.S. economy going to perform over the next year or so? Well, I'm relieved to see Maggie. Finally, I don't know if you've noticed this as well, but the insistence on the soft landing seems to be softening slightly, and that's coming as a huge relief. I've been saying for some time we are going into a recession. I'm trying to get a little bit ahead of that and buy when there's a little bit of blood in the streets. And I think that we're getting, you know, within the seventh, uh, say within the eighth or ninth inning of a tradable bottom in the S&P. It may not be today, but I think that it's we're there within the next couple of sessions, quite honestly. Today, the TLTs or the long bonds actually closed about one and a half percent higher where the junk bonds only closed a half a percent higher. So what's so interesting about that one stat right there is that people are so much cheering 
for the TLTs to rally and the yields to fall. But I always say be careful what you wish for in this case because that would actually flip if somehow those long bonds started to outperform the junk bonds. That would actually be a risk off scenario and could be a signal of recession. You know, where the issues are, in my opinion, are in the non-bank financial sector, the unregulated financial sector. Folks who don't have access to the federal home loan banking system, folks who don't have access to the BTFP, uh, you know, what if we see a broad-based reduction uh, in credit intermediation across the non-bank financial sector? Now, we are way too soon to make that kind of call in terms of what we could see uh, from a, from a you know, broader financial contagion perspective. But if we actually start to see growth really slow materially, and the credit, you know, the animal spirits of these actors in terms of their willingness to win, to lend to themselves and to lend to, you know, uh, private sector borrowers, that's where you can have a real serious bank up, uh, blow up in our opinion. It's always so great to look back and I'm so, I'm so happy we're able to get that clip of Tony in talking about sentiment. He was so prescient with that call. That was Tuesday. Um, but you know, when you've done it a long time, you just put your finger in the air and there's a feeling um, that he was expressing that he could kind of feel like things were maybe getting to the point when we saw the turn today. Remember, he's short term though. So he's now gonna kind of probably reevaluate after the action today. Um, but Peter, I wanted to ask you about some of the concerns that Dale expressed. You know, we've had this relentless move up in treasury yields. And Brian, if you could pull up the chart on the platform of the 10-year, and Peter, you referenced this before. I mean, that has just been a march higher since since uh, you know the spring, sort of April, May. Can the global economy and the credit markets handle yields at these levels? So way back when, uh, before uh, central banks started to experiment with uh, negative interest rates, zero interest rates, and QE, and so on, uh, the level of the 10-year yield typically, give or take, uh, mimicked nominal GDP. And you know that that was thrown out the window. So on an historical basis, you can say, okay, well, rates are 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 back to where they should be. The problem with that analysis right now is is not where yields are today, but we, where yields are today relative to where they were the last 15 years. Right. And that is the problem because you have, and I've said this many times to you before, um, that. Every day somebody's loan is coming due and it's being repriced, if it is being repriced, at a much higher interest rate than the rate on the loan coming due. And that is a continuous problem. Now, for those that have had floating rate debt, well, they saw the impact immediately as, as whatever um, borrowings they had outstanding repriced rather quickly. But for those that have staggered out maturities, whether you're a big business or even a small business, that borrowed money from a bank at a fixed rate for a short period of time, maybe a even a couple of years, that repricing is going to really sting. I mean, you you're going to you have people, you have businesses that have three three and a half percent loans coming due this year, next year, the year after mm. that are going to reprice at nine percent or more. Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. That there's no way even a conservative really, you know, would be able to sort of account for something like that, you know? Right. And if you look at the and I and I the 9%, so the the, the high yield index is yielding about 9.5%. 
If you're a triple C credit, uh, th those yields are 14%. Now, granted, it's not as high as the 16% that we saw uh, when the S&P was at 3,600 last October, but you know, imagine paying 14% on a loan. Uh, so balance sheet matters a lot. And we sort of got a taste of that over the past couple of weeks when it seemed that any company that had a notable amount of floating rate debt or had an over levered balance sheet, uh, you know, the algos sort of went after them. And uh, I, I think that that is really important to focus on. Now, just to, to, to elaborate more on this. So a lot of floating rate debt out there is SOFR or used to be LIBOR plus. And if you think that the Fed is done raising short-term interest rates, well, maybe that the, the maybe the cost of capital is not going to get any worse. Um, now that said, if your loan's coming due, your bank may say, okay, SOFR plus 300 instead of SOFR plus 150. So it may, it may get worse. But for others that um, have floating rate debt that doesn't mature for a couple of years, uh, maybe those rates have stopped going up. But the rise in long-term interest rates, you know, it's going to have its impact. And it's not just on the refinancing ability of, of companies. It's what economic behavior is not taking place because of this rise in rates. Uh, the level of existing homes that we saw in the uh, mortgage bankers data on Wednesday hit its lowest level since 1995 in terms mm -hmm. of the pace of exist uh, and the pace of transactions could be existing or new. Uh, but for someone getting a mortgage, most of it is existing in that data uh, set. Uh, so you're talking about 28 years that the last time we were at these levels. And because during COVID, a lot of people invested in their homes, uh, they don't need to repeat that. So for every home that's not transacted means that there's less stuff getting done in that new home. There's less wood floors being put down or carpet or less paints. Uh, less uh, walls that needed to be painted, and, and so on. Uh, what, what, who's gonna, who's gonna build uh, a commercial real estate project right now? Yeah, uh, you can be sure that there are a lot of pencils down on potential deals, and whether that's an office for obvious reasons, but it's industrial. It's happening in multifamily, which have been the areas of strength in real estate, but a lot of projects that are not getting done, which affects immediately the construction of them, let alone. Uh, the ongoing um, serviceability of them thereafter. Uh, what business just can't get a bank loan uh, because the, the banks want to charge you 10% and you can't come up with enough equity. So there, there's a, a long string of things. And of course, I'm just talking about the US, but you look at Europe. I mean, Germany's basically in a recession. The UK is on the cusp of one because uh, they are having to digest this sharp rise in the cost of capital, particularly in a lot of the housing markets that are very, have been very reliant on floating rate debt, uh, particularly in Australia and Canada. So we had a really interesting comment. So the, the this came up a lot this week too. We've had treasury yield shooting up. We've had the dollar shooting up as well. I wanted to flag a comment from one of our community members, Chang, who wrote, uh, the, with the US dollar continually strengthening, I'm amazed that no one's talking about how it's going to make debt servicing of foreign U.S. dollar-denominated debts that much more expensive, basically ever-rising risk of defaults worldwide, especially China. We were just talking about businesses just not being able to afford 
you know, going to the credit, getting a loan, getting the money they need, tapping capital markets. Are we going to, if you marry that with this, you know, if you're abroad, the issue of this strong dollar, uh, are we facing the threat of defaults for either one of those reasons? Well, the, the dollar is still well off its highs of October 2022. The dollar index was about 114, I believe, and now we're 106. So while we've had a nice rally in the dollar, it's still well below that level, previous level. And if you look at emerging market currencies, uh, they've certainly weakened over the past month plus, um, but they, they've also had a nice bounce. So I'm not as worried about that. And I, and I, and I do think that with the Fed, with, with the bond market sort of doing the Fed's work, that um, we're going to probably see some give back on the dollar. I think it's important also to tie the dollar into the treasury market because, you know, a lot of people were all trying to pinpoint reasons why we've seen this very sharp rise in long-term interest rates. And everyone's got their own theory. And certainly the, the, the supply story is a, is a main factor. And, and I believe in that supply story where the supply story didn't really matter for 40 years plus, and now maybe it does. But the U.S. is not going to be treated as sort of a emerging market banana republic with this rise in interest rates unless the dollar breaks down. So that has obviously not happened yet. The dollar is, is benefiting from uh, the interest rate differential and the rise in long-term interest rates. What you don't want to see is a rise in long-term interest rates and weakness in the dollar. Mm. That's when you become in like an emerging market. And we're certainly not seeing that just yet. Uh, and the dollar, you know, it, it's trades just okay against, like I said, against other emerging markets. The strength has really been against the yen, the pound, the euro and less so elsewhere. Yeah, which is which is great to point out. And we've had uh, guests on before who say they don't love the DXY for that reason because it's ho so heavily weighted against those major currencies. They don't feel like it's always representative of, a, of a, the broadest basket it could be. Uh, we have a question uh, coming in about, um, let me see if I know who, uh, from Claudio. Does he think the service is the recession trigger? I think the service sector is what they're talking about. Are you expecting a recession? Maybe we should start there. Well, there, there's no doubt we're going to get one as, as the economy globally fully uh, absorbs this rise in interest rates. Um, so it, it, it's always, it's a, it's a matter of when it technically happens uh, because the, the impact of higher interest rates is sort of a, a rolling event. Uh, but I talked about the pace of housing transactions being at a 28-year low. Well, I would consider that a recession in, in, in existing home sales, uh, and again, in the pace of, of, of transactions. Manufacturing is essentially in a recession. Uh, it's global trade is essentially in a recession. So what's keeping us afloat is consumer spending and you know, parts of, of the, the CapEx, CapEx sort of stack. And uh, you listen to a lot of retail calls and earnings releases over the past month plus. And I, uh, the, that, that U.S. consumer seems to be on very shaky ground, particularly uh, lower to middle income people. I mean, Conagra, which full disclosure is a stock that we own, they reported earnings yesterday. And when you hear the CEO cite some of the reasons and some of the consumer behavior changes, it was, it was quite sobering. 
where families, and they, they probably get this information from surveys that they do with their customers, where families, when they're prepping meals, it's not just one person prepping a meal for one person, they're prepping a meal for the whole family to last the whole day. Uh, they're being very focused on not letting things go to waste in sort of their inventory and their um, pantry. Uh, and, and also um, you know, being very focused on, um, like I said, not letting things go to waste. So mm. when you see this kind of behavior, it tells you that the consumer is really focused on every penny. Uh, you heard from Costco this week when they came up their monthly comps, continued strength in food and sundries, continued weakness in, in more discretionary stuff. Uh, so th this is a broad trend. And and I do want to bring up Walmart because Walmart somehow blamed Ozempic. Uh, I, I, as, you know, you so, were reading my mind, Peter, because I was, so I was thinking I, in I addition to, to I, everything else, you, you don't buy that. You don't think it's like, oh. No, that, 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 to me, that, that's, that's BS. Um, I, I heard somebody on, on, on TV yesterday that said by 2030, maybe 3 million people will be on Ozempic. We have a country of 330 million people. So there's no chance. So I think Walmart is seeing a softer consumer and that just ha happened to be uh, a convenient excuse. We're gonna take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. That, that's hilarious. Um, for, I'm sure you, most of you saw it, but Walmart said um, that because so many people are now getting on Ozempic, which was a diabetes drug now is being widely used for weight loss, that people are buying less food. Um, and yeah, so that's but, what- you know, If they were to spend that again, you can spend that another way. Well, people are losing weight on Ozempic. They're gonna they buy new clothes. Buy, they have to buy new clothes. <laughs> exactly, which, which Walmart also carries. I mean, I'm not saying we all clothes shop at Walmart, but- um, yeah, that that's interesting. I was I that caught my eye too. I thought, oh, that's that's an interesting comment. That seems very quick to be able to sort of you know run the numbers and figure out pinpoint. That's exactly why. Um, yeah, jumping jumping on the news flow. Uh, so another question coming in. Um, <clears throat> this one's from Michael Jordan. So those of you, Peter, you you won't be aware of this. So I'm explaining it every day. But as we migrate people over to the new website which is fantastic. Check it out, everyone. Uh, there, in the process, until we migrate back to one website, we're sort of running two at the same time. Uh, the comment section, people's names are coming up as serial numbers, like a long serial number. It's so frustrating for everyone. So Brian has been having some fun and naming people just famous people, like what he wants to. So um, this one's from Michael Jordan. Peter, when, when do you think the Fed will intervene at the long end of the US Treasury yield curve, yield curve control, or some other alphabet soup, what, what would trigger that sort of Fed intervention? 5%? Is there, is there a number that you're looking at where you're like, okay, this is, gonna, this is going to unnerve Fed officials and, and might force them into action? So a really good question, uh, because in a way, central banks and the Fed, the ECB, they're, they're losing some control of the long end of the yield curve. Mm. You know, theoretically, in their eyes is, okay, we have inflation, we are going to sharply raise interest rates to control that inflation, and that will allow us to keep in check longer-term interest rates. Because if longer-term interest rates theoretically just trade off growth and inflation expectations, if they have confidence in us as the Fed to control inflation, then we can keep 
uh, a good handle on long-term interest rates. Well, we, they, they didn't foresee a big, sharp increase in long-term interest rates uh, over the past month plus. I think it correlated, it really started when the BOJ widened yield curve control. Mm-hmm. They did it on July 28th. You can look at a chart of the 10-year yield, and you can see right after July 28th is when the 10-year yield in the U.S. started to really spike and where European rates jumped as well. Uh, so at what level do they respond? It's one of those things, and Powell said this at his conference when he was asked a few different questions. He was asked, uh, basically, where's the, the balance sheet going to go on the downside? Well, we'll, n- we'll know it when we see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the neutral rate? Oh, we'll know it when we see it. And at what level will they step in? Well, we will know it when we see it. And it's it's one of those things where if things get disorderly. Exactly. And how do we define disorderly? Uh, you get a couple more weeks of, of this, this rate move. And all of a sudden, we're talking about a 5.5% 10-year in a couple of weeks. Uh, that can be enough for the Fed to at least make it clear that they're not going to hike in November. See, th- that's sort of the sequence of things here is that the Fed's first thing they're going to do is they're going to tell you that they're not going to raise interest rates because the bond market's done it for them. Then they're going to wait to see, because then then the question is, okay, let's just say the Fed is done. Are we going to continue to see a rise in long-term interest rates? Because maybe the long end doesn't want them to be done or for whatever reason, for other reasons it's going higher or does do we get a rally in long end yields when the Fed acknowledges that they're done on the short end? We'll have to see. So a lot of this is 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 sort of play it by ear type central bank behavior, uh, because like if the BOJ gets rid of negative interest rates, let's just say, and we get another global rise in long term interest rates, is the Fed going to try to fight that? I don't know. It's a very difficult thing. Uh, I think with yield curve control, which was part of the question, that's a really difficult experiment because mm. you need you're basically fighting the market. Yeah, I mean it's so hard. The Bank of Japan's been doing it, but and once you declare you're fighting them, they're going to come at you with all they have, right? Back to George Soros because they know at some point it's hard to it's hard to sustain. Right. Like if the, the US Treasury market is so big that if the Fed wanted to really take on the market, the dollar is just going to tank. Mm. Which then creates its own problem because then you yeah. see, then oil is going to go to one hundred and fifty dollars, and then what's the Fed going to do? Yeah. So and, and look at look at the Reserve Bank of Australia. They experimented with yield curve control uh, a couple of years ago, and that blew up in their face. Yeah. So it's a very dangerous thing. It's a roach motel uh, that I hope we don't see. But that said, I'm sure if things get disorderly. You know, the Fed will do what the Bank of England did, will step in and try to calm things down and hope and pray that the market doesn't test them again thereafter. Uh, it's very interesting because when we right at the beginning, when you were talking about the bond markets doing the work for the Fed, that's exactly the question I had. Are they doing work for the Fed or is the Fed losing control of the bond market? Well, that's it's a-, a combination for sure, uh, just by nature of the of the average 30-year mortgage rate going up 100 basis points since the July meeting, well, that's a lot of tightening. And housing is the most interest rate sensitive part of the economy. That's a lot of tightening. So uh, it, it, it is the market doing the tightening for them, but not because the Fed necessarily wanted them to. 
Right, exactly. So for now, maybe achieving the aim, but the question is, can they, can they call it off, really? Um, a couple of people noting that we've had Nat Gas up uh, very strongly. Um, wow, we have so many comments. I love the conversation that's happening on the chat, on the platform. Um, but we, yeah, 15%, Ralph saying, um, in five days. And uh, David has a question from YouTube. What about energy, especially if Europe has a hard winter? They got lucky last year without rushing gas. That's true. By the way, Andreas is, Andreas and I talked about this. Andreas has been taking a look at this. We have a, a, a whole show on the platform we did recently, and we'll keep revisiting that theme, David. So it's a great, a great thing to flag. Um, but Peter, that's got to be a worry for Europe. Yeah, definitely focus, particularly now that we're sort of in the shoulder season where you're not really using your AC uh, anymore and you haven't turned your heat on. Mm. So you're just, you have more subdued demand for natural gas. And maybe this is sort of a dress rehearsal that we're going to see a reversal this coming winter from the mild one that we saw uh, last winter. Uh, so it, it's definitely a big focus. Uh, I still think that over the next couple of years, oil prices and natural gas prices are going much higher. And um, I, I think while we're we're going to get some pullbacks like we've seen in crude oil, where uh, you know went over ninety and went down to almost eighty in a very short period of time, uh, I, I do think we we should still expect much, much higher prices. And uh, you know Europe is definitely going to go into the winter with their fingers crossed again. Mm. And I do think that they've done their best to prepare in terms of storage levels and 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 more able to accept liquefied natural gas as imports. Um, but you can be sure that Russia is probably going to do their best to weaponize as much as they can uh, the price of energy if they can get away with it. Um, but we'll have to see. It's it's uh, you know the, the one thing about geopolitics is and, and even actually central bank policy is that you're you're at the whims of these bureaucrats. You're at these whims of politicians and some more unstable. God than help us, us all right. <laughs> at, the, that, at the present moment. We we we, we all become. We all should have taken political science in college, not thinking that that would be sort of an important part of trying to figure out where markets go. Yeah. Well, you know, you tee us up beautifully, Peter, because we haven't announced this anywhere, but we are going to um, really focus in on geopolitics. I think it's the week of the 16th. I'm catching up with Peter Zahan again um, and Ralph sitting down with D. Smith. Um, and we'll, we'll get some others in the pipeline as we sort of begin, you know, an election period. and. Um, you're right. It's at the central, you know, at the center. I mean, government policy with everything we've seen with fiscal is right at the center of all of this, um, not to mention, you know, war and energy as well. Um, we're almost out of time. I'm going to squeeze one more in. Um, so what do you what do you like here? This, I love it, Eric. Thank you. You've been dil diligently watching and listening because he asked, what's your top long and short idea, assuming that this is not a financial advice. We need to do our own research. Only you can know your own level of risk. <laughs> so uh, I'm still really liking and owning the same things. Uh, it's been a painful couple of weeks owning precious metals uh, as they pulled back hard with this, this big spike higher in interest rates. Uh, before today, gold was down nine days in a row. So that was not fun, but I, I still sort of pound the table on it. I think that these pullbacks are gifts, particularly in the miners that are dirt, dirt cheap. Uh, I still think oil prices, notwithstanding the tug of war between recessionary concerns on one hand, supply challenges on the other, that uh, energy prices continue higher. Uh, still bullish on uranium. We had, we had been um, out of copper for a while. We had been in it and out of it. 
and we just recently got back in it uh, on this pullback. And, and I know people are worried about the, again, economic slowdown, its negative impact on copper, but um, uh, China is no longer the main uh, influence on copper. India is, and India is spending a gobsmack amount of money on infrastructure and economic development. Uh, and then you'll throw in all the other potential tailwinds. So the pullback on some of the copper stocks uh, we've used as a, as a buying opportunity going into next year. Uh, it's been painful owning a bunch of value stocks, cheap stuff, but um, compared to the big cap tech stocks that still so many people are hiding in, uh, we'd be avoiding those and, and still buying the value stocks. And I just want to finish with this because I know you're running out of time here. People are hiding in the big cap tech stocks because they're thinking, you know, Apple, Microsoft, and Google. You know, these companies have these great balance sheets, which they do. They have fortress balance sheets with with enormous amounts of cash and well termed out debt, even if they if they even have the debt. But that's not that's only one part of the analysis on looking at a stock is their balance sheet. You have to look at the income statement too and understand that the issue, the challenge for those stocks is not them themselves; it's their customers. Mm. It's their customer balance sheets that are potentially deteriorating. It is their customers that are going to experience this economic downturn, thus creating less demand for their products and services. That's how you should be thinking about those big cap tech stocks. Don't buy Apple because it's got a good balance sheet or Google. Understand who they're doing business with and make that part of your analysis. Yeah, great, great advice and an and often overlooked point. Um, when, when you're talking about the so-called Magnificent Seven. Peter, we always love catching up with you. Thanks so much for being with us on this wild Friday. Thanks, Maggie. I enjoyed the conversation as well. Uh, just a reminder for everyone, uh, programming note, next week is our Festival of Learning, the next digital assets wave. We are teaming up with Ledger on October 12th and 13th. It is completely free. All you need to do is go to realvision.com forward slash festival to sign up and get the details. Ral's going to be doing a lot of really cool stuff. And finally, since it's Friday, everyone, a little something fun as you head off into the weekend. So we all know that Andreas is wicked smart on markets. Well, turns out that he also has a great sense of humor. Who says finance can't be fun? Enjoy, everybody. Have a great weekend. Buying Bitcoin, but also buying gold. It's like a very active decision to leave the fiat money system. And I've got it for many people that have never bought um, uh, gold, but also Bitcoin before. For them, it's like, ah, they, they feel like it's, it's something, you know, it's like having sex for the very first time. You know, they, they try to read everything and, you know, inform themselves and they're really nervous. Ronnie, to, uh, to be brutally honest, I think my, losing my Bitcoin virginity was a better experience than losing my actual virginity. But I guess that says a lot about <laughs> the latter, right? <laughs> Thanks for joining us, everyone. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by CraneShares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN forward slash Real Vision.